America's original and oldest heritage pack company, Duluth Pack, hosts a podcast led by CEO Tom Sega. Real stories with real people who we admire, plus outdoor industry conversations, business discussions, entrepreneurial advice, and more. Now enjoy this week's episode of Leader of the Pack. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Essentia Health Foundation. The Essentia Health Foundation exists to make a healthy difference in the lives of patients, families, and frontline healthcare staff in our region. From meals and lodging for patients to purchasing state-of-the-art medical equipment and funding research, the Essentia Health Foundation supports programs that directly benefit patients and families in our local community. If we've learned anything over the last two years, it's that healthcare is critical to the safety and well-being of our community. To make a difference, visit EssentiaHealth.org slash foundation. Again, EssentiaHealth.org slash foundation. Hey, everybody, this is Tom Sega from Duluth Pack, and this is the Leader of the Pack podcast. Our special guest today is Sharon McMahon, from Sharon Says So. Sharon, welcome. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's great to have you here, Sharon. And she has, Sharon has a really diverse background and has done some really cool things in business. And we're going to deep dive into a little bit of that today to learn all about you, Sharon. So (laughs) let's let's go right to the top and, and jump in and tell us what you majored in in school to get these diverse backgrounds that you have. Mm. I mean, I started out my career as a, as a high school teacher. And so I clearly went to college originally for education. I am a law and government teacher and so studied education, studied social studies and studied constitutional law. And that was really my educational background had absolutely nothing to do with business, but I have always been naturally entrepreneurial. I can look back now and be like, I was selling bookmarks door to door when I was 10 to make money. You know what I mean? I have always had my hand in some kind of uh, business, even when I was uh, teaching high school. So an entrepreneur from a young age and mm-hmm. had sales in your genes. That, that mm-hmm. is absolutely awesome. How long did you teach high school? I taught high school for about 12 years. I taught mm-hmm. in multi- multiple states. So it was very interesting to see the different educational environments in Minnesota, on the West coast, on the East coast, and they vary so widely. And it gave me a really good understanding of, you know, the different viewpoints of people around the country. That's really cool. And, and so you, you teach high school and not a lot of people do this. So say, Hey, I'm halfway through my career or a quarter of the way through my career. I'm going to switch gears and I'm going to become an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And you became a photographer and a videographer with three Irish girls photography. Mm -hmm. How do you transition from school teacher to a business and in specific, very different than teaching government and law. Now you're going to be taking photography and videography. Mm. Okay. So there's, there's a a missing step in that story, Tom. Okay. When I, you know, I've, taught high school for a long time. I was pregnant, having children, et cetera. And I started a small side hustle in which I hand dyed yarn to, and sold it to yarn shops all over the world. And eventually grew that business to being one of the world's largest hand dyeing companies before I sold it. 
No kidding. Yes. So that was how I got started then in photography was I needed to take better pictures of my products to be able to sell products to retailers around and, and consumers around the world. So that was, I mean, that's really like that. You can see how each little thing kind of grew on the next one. I started a little side hustle in my kitchen and then grew it to a dedicated space in my basement and then grew it to a separate production facility and then moved that production facility from Washington, DC, where I had been living and teaching back to my hometown in Minnesota and, you know, moved some of my employees with me started with like a 5,000 square foot production facility and then eventually moved into like a 15,000 square foot production facility uh, with, you know, lots of employees, et cetera. And I know, you know, something about production facilities. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe to my chagrin, but yes. Um, and so, yeah, Hey, you also know all about the business of hand making products in the United States, selling those to people and selling those to stores. Like you, you're very familiar with it's the same, same thing, just a different product. Um, and so that's how I got started in photography actually was needing to take better photographs of my products so that I could grow my business. Well, before we jump into this photography thing, then how do you hand dye yarn? (laughs) So it's, you're dyeing it for knitters who people who love to knit scarves and sweaters and whatever. And so I really focus most of my business on protein fibers, which are animal fibers. Um, you know, I did dye some cotton fibers, but mostly wool, alpaca, silk, etc. And so the process involves um, an acidic environment and heat, and you have to apply dye in a super artistically pleasing manner to make consistent products so that when people see something online, what they get in the mail is what they see online. And it is actually a very, very, very messy process because it uses a lot of water, dyes that stay in your hands, stay in your hair. Uh, They have to be heated. It's a very hot process. The wool then has to be rinsed and conditioned and dried and spun up and labeled and all that kind of stuff. Again, I know you're very familiar with this, like starting with literally just rolls of canvas, um, or pieces of leather, and then having to fashion new things out of them. So it's a very, again, it's a very parallel product, just in a different, uh, market sector. So how much, when you sold that business, I mean, how uh, is it by the, the, how many feet or yards or miles were you selling per year or weight, or how do you, how did you market it and sell it? I sold it to an, to two of my employees, my two of my employees bought it from me. So I did not actually go out and uh, market it like in a, in any kind of a trade publication or anything along those lines. And I knew that if I was going to sell it, it was going to have to be to somebody who already had some of the understanding of how to operate the business, because it is such a unique, it's a unique skill set. You know, like how many of us know somebody who knows how to professionally hand dye yarn? Probably not many of us, right? I, so I know one now. <laughs> you now know you know the one person. Um, so I had to sell it to somebody that already had a solid understanding of how the product gets made. So by the time, um, by the time I sold it, we had dozens of retailers. Um, we sold, you know, tens of thousands of pounds of yarn a year. I traveled around the country and taught workshops and did trunk shows and. Um, custom made a lot of products for different retailers. Like for example, there was this one 
super cool retailer in Alaska that wanted a lot of Alaska themed products. You know, they wanted, they wanted yarn colorways that were designed to look like the wildflowers that grow in Alaska or something related to the ocean or certain uh, migratory birds that um, live along the coastline. And so they would invite me to come to Alaska and I would do like a whole week's worth of workshops. And, uh, and that was horrible. It's just, just terrible. Horrible. Just terrible. I hated it. It was horrible. No, um, but I loved being able to travel. You know, I traveled everywhere from Alaska to Florida and got to see all these different cool places in the country and again, meet people um, and create products that suited the environment that the people lived in. What people want to knit with in Florida is very different than what people want to knit with in Alaska. You started taking pictures mm-hmm. of the yarn so that you had a great representation of what customers were looking for and that you were selling to them. That's right. So you start taking more and more photography or, or, or pictures. Mm-hmm. You obviously must set up a studio so that yep. you can have sterile shots or, right. or uh, and then I'm assuming lifestyle shots of it so that people can see how. Tell us that whole transition and that and then into the business. I discovered after moving to my you know, second production facility that I really did need a dedicated space to take pictures that was clean because dyeing yarn is not clean. It involves a lot of dust from fiber It, you know, like when you go to wind yarn, like all the little teeny think about when you brush your hair, like the stuff that comes out of your hair that happens I, with yarn. I don't have to worry about that that much anymore. <laughs> You're moving on to that stage, are you? Um, <laughs> so it's very dusty. It's very messy. And so when I moved into my new production facility, I intentionally installed a photography space in the front of the building that was beautiful. It was, you know, clean and had beautiful hardwood floors and white walls and crown molding, et cetera, so that I could do those sort of lifestyle shots and also those more close-up product shots. And I had worked with a number of photographers over the years and none of them were ever achieving my desired outcome. None of, nobody was ever delivering exactly what I wanted, but yet I didn't have the skills to be able to deliver exactly what I wanted either. I was using what many photographers would refer to as the spray and pray method where you're just like, if I take 50, one will turn out. You know what I'm saying? Isn't that how it's all done? (laughs) No, not when you know what you're doing. No. Um, But that was initially what I was doing. It's just like, and it would take me forever. It would take me forever to, if I needed five pictures, to have to spend an hour trying to get five shots. So I knew I needed to up my photography game and having this dedicated photography space gave me the time and the space to be able to start um, learning more. I started taking workshops, et cetera. And then once people in my community knew that I had this dedicated photography space, I started getting a lot of requests from friends, et cetera, asking me to, can I, can we come over to that space and can you take family pictures for us? And very quickly, the demand for my photography was so significant that I had to, once we moved into this new production facility where I had the the dedicated photo space, I had to make a decision. Like I cannot keep taking all these pictures and simultaneously run my yarn business. I cannot do both of those things. And that was when I uh, made the decision to sell the, the yarn business and to pursue photography full-time. 
Wow. And so you start three Irish girls photography mm-hmm. and you start doing family photos, weddings, and all kinds of other things. Mm-hmm. How did that transition work? You know, you sell the one business, the transition, and then the growth of that business to where you got it to. Mm. I was, I had the very good fortune of running a highly successful photography studio. And, you know, I shot over 400 sessions a year, um, truly made incredible friendships. The relationships with my clients were so important to me. Um, and I really do think that was, first of all, you have to deliver a quality product. I mean, you know, this too, no amount, you can market the heck out of your product. You can be a great marketer, but if ultimately the person gets the product home and they're like, this is garbage. They're not going to tell their friends to hire you, right. Or to buy from you. So you can market it and you might be able to have those initial sell sales but to have that longevity. There has to be something that keeps people coming back that keeps them recommending you to their friends. So First of all, I had to be good enough to consistently deliver quality products, quality images so that people would tell their friends and also to develop something that was unique enough in the marketplace that my work was recognizable to other people that people would look at, you know, on Facebook, they'd look at baby pictures or wedding pictures and be like, Oh, did Sharon take those? I developed a recognizable style that then people would uh, want to hire me for. And then when they did hire me, I consistently delivered quality, those quality images that reflected what they hired me for. This is a problem with some service providers is when somebody hires you to do something and you think you're getting a beautiful Japanese garden landscape design. And instead what you get is something that looks like, you know, somebody just drove by on their John Deere with some wildflowers there's, there's a disconnect there between what they thought they were hiring you for and what they actually got. So developing the skill set that was necessary to be able to deliver what people believed they were hiring me for so that you could surprise and delight your clients every time they hired you was really one, one of the factors that went into my success in my, with my photography studio. Sure. How did you learn the art? You were taking pictures of in your yarn studio, and then you started taking families, but there's a lot that goes into photography, whether it's lighting and speeds and the technology with all the equipment that you have now. How did you learn all of that? Mm. It's a, it's a many year process. I mean, anybody who tells you that they picked it up overnight is lying. And (laughs) I, I learned a lot of it from taking various, uh, online courses, taking workshops, um, reading books, studying, trying to dissect, you know, when I saw an image that I liked trying to dissect, how did they do that? And trying to teach myself this idea of like, how did they do that? Um, it takes a lot of self-motivation. I'm I'm a very self-motivated person. And so I had this self-motivation to learn how to do this. Um, and I used a variety of different methods to sort of educate myself. I never went to college for photography. I don't have an art degree. Um, I will say though, that photography is both an art and a science. So you have the science of light. You have the science of things like shutter speed, uh, exposure triangle. There's this scientific element of it that if, even if you have an artistic eye, if you don't know the science, you're never going to yield the artistic results that you want. But in addition to the science, you also have to have that artistic vision. 
uh, you can be great at the science, but if you, if all, if you don't have any artistry, you're never going to achieve that level of greatness, you know? So you have to have both the scientific know-how of how to be a photographer and also that artistic vision to be able to, um, have a, a viewpoint that you want to capture. Sharon, as you are in your photography business, you're busy as heck. I mean, you're doing 400 shoots plus a year, as you mentioned, you know, I mean, and that's what entrepreneurs do, right? We, 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 you do it all and mm -hmm. you're the first one there and the last one to, to leave. You start becoming a social media influencer. <laughs> help us, help us through that transition. Well, I didn't see that one coming, Tom. All right. Um, <laughs> I didn't see any of these things coming, frankly. Uh, and that's, that's actually part of the fun of the fun of the journey, right? Is, um, I bet when you were a young, I don't know, maybe you did, but when you were a little boy, were you like, someday I will own Duluth pack? Uh, that would be no. When I was daydreaming in high school, Sharon, staring out the window, wondering what am I going to do with my life? Owning a cut and sew shop, not once crossed my mind. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's uh, right. No, I was going to be a charter captain. Mm -hmm. And uh, no, that never happened. So, mm -hmm. but you transition and they're very different type businesses. You see mm -hmm. people who are, are entrepreneurs like yourself, who they, they get in one vertical and they may be an entrepreneur in several different businesses within one vertical. But so far, we've talked about a high school teacher. <laughs> we talked about owning a uh, dying mill, a dying company that would dye yarn. We talk about a photography company that is very diversified. And then you transition again, which we're getting closer to today, <laughs> uh, right. into a, a field of being, once again, an entrepreneur, but an influencer, a podcaster, how did that transition come about for you? Be mm -hmm. and, and I'll also come back to, do you still take pictures? Do you still do the <laughs> photography part of it? But how did you transition that? What did the light bulb just go on one day? Mm, you know, there was this sort of moment. Uh, it was in September of 2020. And I was just cruising around Facebook as one does. And I saw a comment that a stranger left on a friend's post and the friend was a physician and she had said something about, you know, the upcoming election and the stranger, I still don't know who this person is. The stranger made a comment on her post uh, about the electoral college that was factually incorrect. It was not an opinion, you know, like, I think we should get rid of it, or I love it. I think it's great. It was just like a factual misunderstanding of how the electoral college works. And again, as a many year government teacher, this is knowledge that I possess because I had to teach it to 16 year olds for a decade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So, um, I had this little light bulb moment where I was like, I could either correct the stranger on Facebook here and now and be like, actually type, 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 type. That is not how this, how the electoral college works. Type, 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 type. I could do that. Mm -hmm. But then I also felt like that is a battle I could fight 1000 times a year, right? I could get out there and just like comment on people's Facebook posts and correct all this, these misconceptions, or I could just make a little video 
and and just like explain the electoral college in a nonpartisan, fact based, easy to understand, fun way. And then anytime anybody wanted to refer to it, they could. Or my friend, the physician, could just link to the video in her comments. So the stranger, again, still don't know who he is. So a stranger could watch it uh, and they could refer back to this information anytime. So that was really the genesis of what I am doing now, uh, where I provide nonpartisan fact-based political information, uh, education, current events analysis, and I teach workshops, podcasts, et cetera, online. Um, that was the genesis was that one stranger's comment about the the electoral college on my friend's Facebook post, And I made a little video and I purposely, I went out of my way to do the opposite of what nearly every news network, especially cable news, the opposite of what cable news does, which is to, you know, cable news likes to make things inflammatory. They like to make you feel afraid. If they can make you feel afraid, they can get you to watch we don't tend to stay glued to our TVs when the newsman is like, well, it's a sunny day and everybody's getting along. You know what I mean? Exactly. We, we, we watch when things are scary, when something like it's a tornado, it's, it's a war, you know, like it's September 11th. Like we're glued to our TVs when we're afraid. So I purposely took the opposite approach than what people could find in most places online. Um, I wanted to make a non-boring video. Of course, you can find a bunch of boring videos on YouTube, <laughs> but people, people are not going to watch a boring 20 minute video. I wanted to make it short, amusing, etc. but I wanted it to not be inflammatory. I wanted it to not be. Um, and by the way, you should vote for this candidate at the end. So I purposely did not even use the two candidates who are running in 2020. I didn't even use their names. I made up fake candidate names so that again, people wouldn't feel like I was trying to promote one candidate over another. And I had little props that were just like little kid things that I used in my photography business. I was like, this is Bob. You know what I mean? And it was just like right. a little stuffed animal. And this is Karen. And it was a different little stuffed animal talking about how the electoral college works. So that was how I got started. And then I found that my friends um, and the people who followed me for my photography business, I found that they really enjoyed it. And I'm like, well, what, maybe I'll make one video a week. What do you want next week's video to be about the next week? Somebody wanted to learn about the role of third parties. And is it wasting your vote to vote for a third party? And what are the different ways to look at what it would mean to vote for a third party candidate? And so I just made a little video about like, listen, some people have the goal of affecting the outcome of the election. They want their vote to make a difference, in which case maybe voting for a third party is not the best because it is the least likely way to impact the outcome of the election. But some people, that is not their goal when they vote. Some people are voting for matters of conscience or they're voting for a host of other reasons. And to them, voting for a third party candidate makes complete sense. So anyway, that was my second video was like, let's talk about third parties. And so each week I would just put up a little box and would say, what do you want to learn about this week? And I would make a little fact-based nonpartisan video. And I did that for a number of weeks, you know, throughout September and October of 2020. And then in 
Um, at the end of October, 2020, this is like literally a few days before the election of 2020, I got a phone call from a radio station in the twin cities saying that people had sent them my name, um, because they were looking for somebody to just, um, break down the facts surrounding the election process in the United States. And oh, again, get out of here. Somebody yeah. uses facts? <laughs> yeah, Come right. on, Sharon. Impossible. <laughs> Impossible. I, I thought it's just whoever yells louder. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, and this is like, if you know Twin Cities Radio, this is like the Dave Ryan morning show, which is very lighthearted. It's not political. They're not going to get into this thing about like, here's who we think you should vote for. And so that's not what they were looking for. They weren't looking for like an academic to make it boring. And they weren't looking for somebody to tell you to vote red or blue. And so they had me on the morning show to just be like, listen, here's what's going to happen. Uh, here's how, here are the facts surrounding how the system works. Not here is how you should feel about it, or here is who you should vote for. And so from that moment, I started getting, um, inundated with messages, uh, people around the country, like people in the military who are from the twin cities, who love listening to Dave Ryan, who listen on like the iHeartRadio app, who live in Georgia who were like messaging me being like, I heard you on the radio this morning, et cetera. Um, and so then I started getting other TV news stations, uh, and I started, you know, started growing my following. And of course the very tumultuous 2020 election cycle certainly had, uh, a lot to do with, uh, the growth trajectory of my social media following. Um, shared question for you yeah, because at this time, and and we're we're kind of deep into COVID at this yes, time. Yes. And your photography business, I'm assuming, had waned off a little bit yes. due to the pandemic. Totally. But yeah. you still are in business with that as well at that time. Yes. Although I would say, because again, March 2020 is when things really started going downhill business-wise. And for a period of time in Minnesota, um, you could not do business indoors without uh, masking. And turns out nobody wants pictures indoors wearing a mask, right? Like that's common sense. Yep. Um, And so that all, that presented its own challenge in terms of the logistics of continuing to take pictures, especially because Weather in Minnesota is complete garbage in March and April. It's just, there's no other way to say it. It's garbage. (laughs) I love Minnesota. I love winter, blah, blah, blah. But April is like 46 and muddy. What are you doing with that? It was 16 below at my house today. I'll take 46 and muddy. Come on, Sharon. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. I get that. But at least the snow is pretty to look at. It's not ideal at all from a photography standpoint to stand in freezing mud. The snow, Uh, the snow. Note to self. (laughs) The snow is prettier on camera than the freezing mud is. Um, The other thing that that complicated my photography business, of course, the beginning of the pandemic was very scary for people. Um, So many unknowns. And the other thing that complicated that was in August of 2020, um, my husband had a kidney transplant. And so he had, uh, he was very sick from the period of the beginning of the pandemic until he had his kidney transplant, very sick. And, and then 
post kidney transplant, by the way, my mother donated her kidney to a stranger so he could get one from a stranger. Holy um, mo- <laughs> Are you serious? Say that for our listeners again, because this is humankind being humankind. Mm, yes. So at the Mayo Clinic, they often run donor chains where more than one person is involved in a live donor transplant at a time. And so on the same day, they will do all of these surgeries on the same day at various facilities. Um, And so on August 5th, 2020, my mother donated her kidney to a stranger in Wisconsin. We still don't know who that person is. And my husband received a kidney from a stranger in Texas. And we do know who that person is now because they have written letters to us. And we know that it was a, um, a young man who was 26. He was an electrician who had, was listening to a podcast one day at work while he's being an electrician. He was actually working at a hospital. We were doing some wiring work in a hospital. He was listening to a podcast about kidney donation and just had this little ping where he was like, I should look into that. And so he did, he called up the national kidney registry and was like, I'd like to be evaluated to be what, what in the medical field is referred to as a good Samaritan donor, where somebody donates a kidney or a portion of their liver, not to a specific person. A lot of times those live donations, they're done, you know, from one donor to another, um, where it's, you know, the recipient. But a good Samaritan donor donates a kidney or a portion of their liver solely out of benevolence. They don't get paid for it. Um, They do get their medical expenses covered, but they don't receive any compensation and they don't have a known recipient. And he did not know who his, uh, who his kidney was going to go to when he donated it. But it was just like this prompting from listening to a podcast. It wasn't that the podcast was not even like you should donate. It was just sharing the stories of people who had been donors and who had been recipients. Um, so is that then, a great human being or is that a I great know. human being? I mean, truly, uh, it just, it could not have been more, you know, the other thing that was fascinating about it is I was also in the process of being evaluated to donate my kidney to my husband. Um, we're one of the things that goes into kidney donation, of course, is, um, a blood type match, which we are, we have compatible blood types. Um, and they also like to make sure, of course, that the donor is super healthy so that you can live a long, full life with only one kidney. So if you have any kind of health concerns that will uh, exclude you from being a donor. And additionally, the organs need to be appropriately sized for the recipient. Um, my husband is six, five and, oh you know, like weighs 210 pounds, you know, like he's, he's a large man. And so he, it would not be a good fit for him to receive an organ from a very, very petite woman, because your organs are sized to your body, right? Like you have a big kidneys, you have a big body. And so a small, one small kidney would not be appropriate for somebody like him. So I am also very tall. I'm six feet tall. And so we were like, well, maybe we've been waiting on this registry for a long time. Maybe the thing to do would be to explore if I should donate to you. Uh, And one of the reasons we had not explored that sooner was because I was the primary breadwinner running my business. Um, And additionally, we have four children. And so it was going to be like, who would care for our children if both mom and dad have major surgery on the same day? You know what I mean? Like the logistics of that 
are very significant. Not that we don't have family that would help, but again, the logistics of having taking care of four kids and trying to run it, be the breadwinner, um, while you're recovering from major surgery and then having to take care of your husband who is recovering from major surgery. All that was very challenging, but he'd been waiting long enough for uh, a transplant that I began going through the testing process at Mayo to get, to be able to try to donate to him. And I had completed almost all of the testing. There were still some things that I needed to do. It's very extensive. It's very extensive. If nothing else, you will leave with a very, very clear picture of your own health. The amount of blood work, the amount of, you know, imaging is very intense. While we're waiting for the final sort of approval for me to donate to him, we got a phone call that said, um, we have a donor match. And by the way, my mom had also gone through the process of being willing to donate, but she could not donate directly to my husband because they don't have a blood type match. They would have to do a paired donation. We have a, a paired donation match for your husband and it could not be a better match unless it was a full sibling. Uh, you know, this is like a large, very young man, uh, who is in amazing condition, like amazing physical health and the tissue matching could not be better unless you were biological siblings. And even then some biological siblings don't match that well. So he took that match and he had the surgery and he's doing well now, but he will always for the rest of his life, um, be significantly immunocompromised because, uh, you have to take suppressive drugs for the rest of your life and hardcore suppressive drugs for the rest of your life to be able to keep your organ healthy. So that was the other thing about the pandemic that made it challenging to run my photography business was knowing that my husband contracting COVID, um, could result in a very serious outcome for him, not just from death, but also from the loss of his transplanted organ, um, uh, transplant recipients, kidney transplant recipients have a, around a 30% mortality rate from COVID. So it, it is not, their risk is just Huge. exponentially higher, exponentially higher. If somebody said to you, Tom, like, well, your wife has a 30% chance of dying from this disease if she gets it. And then an additional 30% chance of losing her transplanted organ that your mother just sacrificed one of her kidneys to give. So he could get one, you would do whatever it took to protect that person's health. Absolutely. Yes. And, and you definitely wouldn't want to have a career where you're in the public, That's right. which your photography business would have been. That's right. And in close contact with the public, there's no way to do photography of a family from a far distance. You need to be able to interact with people. And that's part of the beauty of being a photographer is that interaction with people. Um, you, and you know, so all that to say that had significantly diminished my photography business. I was still doing a little bit outside once the weather had warmed up, et cetera, but it, it really impacted what I was able to do. And then I also ended up taking, um, you know, multiple weeks off because once you have that organ transplant, you have to remain at the Mayo clinic for, for weeks afterwards or in the vicinity for weeks afterwards. So all of that set me up to being in the position of having the time to actually sit and make these little videos about the electoral college and third parties and to go on the radio and to do TV interviews 
Whereas if I had been running my photography business at the full tilt that I had been running at for years, there's no way I would have time. I'd be way too busy with clients. Sometimes I had seven clients a day. There's no way that I could have been like, sorry, I'm going to have to cancel your session that you've been waiting for six months for. Cause I need to make a video about the electoral college. No, exactly. you know what I mean? So that was the hand of Providence in many ways that he was able to get a kidney transplant that he's in good health now. Um, but it also created the space in my life to be able to pursue the business that I'm pursuing now. Obviously, the videos that you talk about, Sharon, make it very easy to understand why it's called Sharon Says So. <laughs> That's right. One of the questions I have is, why did you name it that? Well, you just <laughs> answered all of that for us. But what was your primary goal of running an Instagram page and creating the website. I mean, you, you, you made a couple of videos now to explain a few things. Mm -hmm. what, what, at that point, what's your vision of where am I going to go with this and why am I going to go there? Mm. You know, initially I had no game plan. Initially I had no business plan. I had no, no concept that this would turn into what it has become. It's kind of like that sort of, um, classic entrepreneurial uh, happenstance where you're like, I had no idea there was this huge hole in the market, but I stumbled in it. I tripped in this hole in the market yep. <laughs> and, and I realized that like, dang, this is something that people actually really need and want. So I did not initially have that game plan, but once I started seeing how much demand there was for the information, um, it, it, it began within a few months, I began teaching workshops online and the workshops were meant to give people, um, a little bit more in-depth information. I can only talk about so much stuff on Instagram, you know, like you get 15 seconds per story. Um, so I wanted to be able to talk about things in depth, like here is how Congress works. Here are the committees that are in Congress. Here's how, here's what happens once you get elected. How do they teach you how to be a Congress person? You mean you I, can't do that in 15 seconds? <laughs> turns out, turns out no. Okay. So I started teaching little workshops. Um, and then, you know, that was, I don't, I don't like the phrase and the rest is history, but then, then the other news media began to take notice. Then I started getting phone calls from the daily show and good morning, America, um, et cetera. And so that also significantly, of course, contributed to, uh, my platform. So tell us your social handles right now, before we get into a few more questions and because, because I'm interested in how do you make a living doing what mm -hmm. you're doing? Mm -hmm. Give us your social handles for our listeners. It's just, I'm primarily on Instagram, but I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Sharon says so. Uh, and then I have a website, which is just my name, SharonMcMahon.com. That's simple. Mm -hmm, that's simple. Now, how in the heck do you make a living? <laughs> well, so the first thing that I do is I teach workshops and those workshops are monetized. They're very affordable. You know, they, my goal again is education. So it's not to gatekeep information. Um, but I also, people understand like, yeah, you have to, you want to do this. You need to earn money to feed your family. So the workshops are, you know, like three, about three to $10. They're very affordable. And then you get to download the video and keep it forever. So that's one thing that I do. Another thing that I do to uh, monetize 
is I run a, an exclusive book club and the, I bring in uh, really high caliber authors to talk about their books. We have meetings. I have a private Instagram. If that, if you join the pay to join the book club, you get access to my private Instagram. Um, and so that is one of the big ways that I, uh, earn a living doing what I'm doing. Additionally, I run a podcast. I signed a, a deal with a podcast network. And so my podcast is monetized with my, via my podcast network. Um, and then I did just uh, sign a book contract. So I will also be, uh, you know, that will also be another avenue of monetization is my book projects. Sharon, everything about what you're doing with Sharon Says So is around government and law, but primarily government. Mm -hmm. What is the challenge of staying nonpartisan because so everywhere else, like you said, I want to go the other direction because everyone's giving their personal opinions and you're trying to deal in facts. How difficult is it to stay nonpartisan? How difficult is it to stick just to the facts? Mm. So, okay. There are some things that I absolutely will give you my opinion on. For example, um, is Vladimir Putin a good guy? Nope. <laughs> you know, like there are some things that I'm just like, Hey, there's just no two ways about it. No, he's not. Um, is, are, is it good to be a neo-Nazi? No. You know, like there are definitely some things that I like have a pretty firm line in the sand where I will tell you like, that is just morally wrong. And I'm not going to pretend that it's okay. You know what I mean? Um, sure. but is, is there room to discuss what is an appropriate top marginal tax rate for corporations? Sure. You know what I mean? Like I can give you, here are the pros to having these higher top marginal rates versus the pros to lowering taxes for people. You know, like there's, there's a room for diversity of viewpoint. And I also strongly believe in the importance of diversity of viewpoint. Uh, same thinking is how you end up with a dictatorship. Same thinking is how you end up with tyranny. So uh, diversity of viewpoint is actually uh, extremely beneficial in a democracy. We, this country has never, ever had anything other than an incredible diversity of viewpoint, beginning with George Washington's cabinet, where he purposely appointed people that disagreed with each other to be able to hear from their variety of views. You know, like there was absolutely no love lost between Thomas Jefferson and, and Alexander Hamilton. They did not enjoy each other's company, uh, at, but, but Washington respected them for different reasons. And he wanted them both in his cabinet so he could hear what they both had to say because he knew they were both smart. So to me, diversity of viewpoint, again, as long as we're keeping it between the lines here, we're not going to be out here, uh, being racist and neo skinheads, and we're not going to, uh, kill people for our political beliefs. So, like there are some things that are just huge notes in my opinion, but aside from that, I think it's important to understand where other people are coming from, not just cause it's like, Oh, the nice kumbaya thing to do, but because that is actually number one, better for your own intellectual development, but number two, better for the country. It is what is good for America to be able to understand all of the diverse viewpoints that are present. You have a viewpoint 
as an entrepreneur and a business owner, Tom, that somebody who just works in academia doesn't have. Um, I have a viewpoint as a longtime teacher that somebody who um, has has never done anything other than nursing has. And those are all things that we that are important for us to consider and learn from. And I don't think that can be, I don't think that we can overstate how important that is. I, I think your comments right there, Sharon, are, are very important because not once did you say any of those four viewpoints is right or wrong. You're saying they could be very different viewpoints, but they're all valid. And we need to learn to listen to each other. If I'm hearing is mm -hmm. let's listen to each other. We'll make our own decisions, but let's listen to each other and learn from one another. Mm. It's hard to make an educated opinion or make an educated decision if you have no education. <laughs> right? So if you're like, okay, I own this, uh, I own Duluth pack and what kind of canvas should we, should we buy? If you have no education on what types of canvas actually hold up, what kinds of canvas are easy to sew, what kinds of, you know, like if you have no education on that, you're not making an educated opinion. You need education as a foundation to be able to understand so that you can make important educated decisions for your business that then impact the community at large. So education is really the foundation of what I do. It's, a, it's equipping people to make high quality decisions on their own, instead of being spoon fed information, uh, where they just parrot back my talking points. Sharon, who is your audience? Mm, the vast majority of people in my community are well-educated women between the ages of 25 and 45. And certainly there are people outside those demographics. Certainly there are uh, people who are older, younger, uh, people who are not women, people who do not go to college, but that is a big chunk of who is, who is in the governored community are well-educated adult women. And what is the most common feedback you get from your followers? You know, the governors are truly some of the nicest people in the world. Over the last year, we have raised and given away three and a half million dollars. Uh, and so these are people who care deeply about their communities. And I hear consistently from people, thank you for just having this space. Thank you for having this space. It's a place that I feel like I can go to get information that doesn't make me feel um, enraged that doesn't make me feel um, terrified. I know that I'm going to be able to understand an issue better after I watch your stories or, or take one of your workshops. So I hear a lot of thank you. Um, I also hear a lot of people saying that I that listening to my educational materials on social media has decreased the anxiety they feel about the world or the anxiety they feel about the news. Because if all you're listening to are angry people, angry talking heads on, on cable, you don't leave that interaction feeling real optimistic and great. <laughs> you know what I mean? You feel like just enraged sometimes. You know, it's so funny that you talk about that because it, within the company, within the, the, you know, some of the meetings that we have in our company here, we were chuckling the other day because we said, you know, if we could all be as human beings, half as loyal as our dogs, wow, 
Mm-hmm. There'd be none of these issues. I hate to tell you, Sharon, but you might be out of a job if that were <laughs> if we were all half as half as uh, loyal as our dogs. But mm-hmm. you think about that, just the loyalty to people from the standpoint of understanding other people. And we all have different views and, and we can all educate ourselves better on whatever subject it is. And we mm-hmm. have all that space out there to get that uh, information and knowledge now and, and get it where it makes you feel good. One of the things you, you said is that your, your, I'll call them your customers, but your followers, your listeners say they get some information and they don't feel enraged. Mm-hmm. And you think about just how many people are enraged every day by just listening to the radio or watching TV these days where maybe we can just go and get educated on something that we are interested in, or maybe we should be learning more on that doesn't enrage us, isn't polarizing one way, shape or form. Mm. I think that's pretty cool. I think it's cool. It's also, you know, it's really no way to live your life. It's no way to live your life in a constant state of enragement. <laughs> but you know if you turn I mean? the TV on, that's where that's everyone wants us. That's what that's they what, want us to be. That a hundred percent. Cause that's, you know, that adage of if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, they absolutely want you to be enraged because that keeps you loyal to their network. If you believe that the, the other guys are doing it wrong, the other guys are, are out there just ruining the country. You know what I mean? Like, that's how they want you to feel when you watch. Um, yeah, it's, I, I don't think that's a, a healthy place to live your life. You're not getting the full enjoyment of enjoying the outdoors, petting your dog, being with your grandchildren, enjoying your friends. You're not getting the full enjoyment of life if you're dedicating hours a day to being enraged. You are absolutely right. And I always say, where is Walter Cronkite when we need yeah, him? You know what? Totally. You're probably way too young for- Oh, what, I know who what, he is. You know, everyone should look that up. Look up yeah. Walter Cronkite. He was he was awesome. Yep. So folks, we're talking to Sharon McMahon from Sharon Says So. And we're going to transition, Sharon, to a little section we call the packed question segment. Okay. So right. we're going to deep dive on you a little bit. What's your favorite hobby in your free time? Mm. <laughs> All that free time All you have. The free time. I love to read. I never, I, the, my book pile never gets any smaller. I'm always adding more. Uh, I add more, more quickly than I can read them all. So I do love reading. You said a book pile. That tells mm-hmm. me you're old school because you actually buy a book. I do. I love to buy books. I, I mean, I certainly do have a Kindle and I certainly do have an audible subscription, but I, there's something about having a paper book that there's nothing else like it. You can just get enthralled in it, right? Yep. Yep. Favorite movie. Oh goodness. So many, but I, you know, my all-time fave has to be the sound of music. I just love it so much. I've watched it like 50 times. I love Julie Andrews. I love the soundtrack. I love the whole I just love the whole story. I love it. Favorite place that you have traveled to? Mm. Oh, it has to either be, you know, like I've enjoyed many countries in Europe, but uh, I mean, like there, is there anything better than the food in France? Of course not. But I absolutely do love Hawaii so much. Hawaii has a very special place in my heart. 
That's pretty fortunate. You've been to some pretty cool places. Yes, yes. Where, where's the one place you haven't been yet that you, is on the bucket list? Mm, Switzerland. I need to get there. We had a trip planned before COVID and then it got pushed off, pushed off, pushed off. We're now into like our third year of it getting pushed off because of all the travel restrictions, et cetera. But that is like, as soon as we can, that is the next place I want to go. Not for the food though. No. Well, I do love cheese and chocolate. Well, not yeah, going to lie. Do. You're going to get some, you're <laughs> going to get that. And last packed question is what's the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Good question. You know, I, I love the idea that we cannot underestimate the importance of small actions in our own lives, in our communities, in our own families, that we think that we need to be out there with, you know, a million followers and millions of dollars and, you know, making these big impacts, but we cannot underestimate the importance of just doing something small each day. You do not know the ripple effect that that is going to have in your community. And all of us doing something small actually will make a huge difference. It'll make a bigger difference than one person trying to do it all. If we all do something small, we would have a very different community and world in a year than with just one person trying to be like, I can fix it. You know what I mean? So I love the idea. And I think it's very important that we don't talk ourselves out of doing small things because we feel like they're too small because it is impossible to ascertain the true impact of that small thing that we did. So be willing to do small things, plant little seeds, even if you don't see huge results right away. You're giving us the good advice now. You receive <laughs> that, but you're, you're you're sharing it with us. So that is awesome. Sharon, once again, give us all of the handles mm. everywhere that people can find you and follow you. Mm. So on all the social medias, uh, my handle is at Sharon says so. I'm most active on Instagram. Uh, I post a lot of Instagram stories every day. So at Sharon says so. And then my website is just my name, SharonMcMahon.com. McMahon is M-C-M-A-H-O-N, Sharon McMahon. Sharon, this has been a ton of fun, folks. Again, Sharon McMahon from Sharon says so. Go follow her. Learn some stuff from Sharon. And give her some feedback because it looks like she takes that and says, I can find more information to help and and educate people Mm -hmm. with. We appreciate you being here today. Thank Mm -hmm. you for your time. And this has been really fun, Sharon. So fun. Thank you. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. And folks, until next time, unplug from the indoors and recharge in the outdoors. Thank you for listening to another episode of Leader of the Pack. Don't forget to rate this podcast, and we would certainly be grateful if you'd give us five stars. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Follow Duluth Pack on social media at Duluth Pack. And shop online at DuluthPack.com. Don't forget to support American jobs and buy American made.